Good morning, everyone. Welcome, welcome to The Rock on this fantastic, beautiful, grey uh, Wellington day. <laughs> I'm just going to pray before we get into it, and uh, then we'll get started. Father, I thank you for your present presence with us. Father, I thank you that before the beginning of creation, your Holy Spirit was there hovering. Father, I thank you that we don't have to come to a Sunday morning service to meet with you. We don't need to invite you to be here with us. Father, I thank you that the word Christ himself is with us, in us, and in our hearts. Father, I thank you that when we gather and we come here, Father, we're not coming to encounter a person per se in a room, although you do turn up in your manifest presence. Father, but I thank you that your presence lives inside of us. And Father, that your heart is that we would have Christ formed in us to a greater and deeper measure. Father, I pray this morning that there would be a divine, eternal work that takes place in all of us. Father, I pray that there would be hearing with spiritual ears. Father, a hearing that that goes beyond our physical ears, that enters right into our innermost being, Father, and opens up a brand new world. Father, it would be like going through that wardrobe in Narnia, Father, and seeing, tasting, feeling, touching a new realm, the kingdom realm that's of your spirit. So, Father, I pray that you would bring us into this realm of the spirit this morning, um, Father, and that your Holy Spirit would minister to us in a real deep and living way. And pray this in your awesome name. Amen. All right. So for those of you who have been coming along for the last number of weeks, we've been looking at a powerful and awesome theme. Can any, do I have any takers? What, what is the core theme that we've been looking at over the last number of weeks? Death of self is the way to life. <laughs> for all of those who can read England, um, it's just right up there on the board. <laughs> that didn't work out so well. <laughs> Thanks, AV guys. <laughs> um, but you all nailed it. Death of self is the way to life. And we heard last week about the God of self and that the, if the God of self is still living in us, then that's a problem, right? We heard the testimony of a, of a man who came up here and over the microphone it's recorded for everyone to hear, it's been, you know, you can't get away from it. A man who came up here and said that at 10 a.m. in the workplace, 1997. Have you heard that before? <laughs> I may as well just preach Greg's, uh, <laughs> Greg's story this one. But we heard not the life story, but the testimony of a man who said some pretty radical words. What I heard was that when Christ entered into me, he said, Greg Simnor died. The God of self ceased to exist. He said that he was filled with a new power, a new source of life within him that gave him the ability and the capacity to live in a way 
that he had never lived before. Powerful, powerful declaration of the truth, not just about God, but the truth of a living, dynamic, real position of God being formed in the heart and mind of a believer. Now, the question that I had is, what do you do about something like that? What do you do with something that is so full and so complete to say that the God of self had been crucified? The God of self had ceased to exist. Greg Simnor no longer lives and Christ lives in me. What do you do with such a message that is so complete and so full? How do you respond? How does your heart respond? How do you respond if you've been a Christian for 5, 10, 15, 20, 30 years and you hear about a true beginning point, a, a true starting point in the spirit that's not your starting point? What do you do when you hear about a living reality that exists that you're not in? <laughs> do you rejoice? Does it fill you with fire and power and and a sense of yes? Or does it or does it condemn? Does it make you feel small? Does it make you want to crawl up in a little ball and think, man, what's my life been about for the last however many years that I've been a Christian? They're big questions, hey. And we've got to grapple with the reality of truth when it's proclaimed. You know, Peter, um, in, in Acts, when all of the um, 120 believers in the upper room were filled with the Holy Spirit, Peter gets up and he preaches and he releases the reality of Christ. And the people's response was, what must we do? What now must we do? And Peter says to them, Repent. Repent. Change the way that you think. Change the way that you see. Allow the reality of what you just heard to penetrate your innermost being so that that which was prophesied and testified becomes your living reality. That's how they responded. How have you responded? Has truth confronted and convicted you to the extent that it comes like an arrow and enters into your innermost being that the testimony that you've heard has now become your testimony? Because the death that you heard about the crucifixion is no longer event or something that Christ did for you, but something that he's now done within you. Because as Christ was crucified, now you can truly say, I have been crucified with Christ and it's no longer I that lives, but Christ has lived, now lives within me. Because you've shared in true fellowship of the Spirit. It says that if we share with him in the likeness of his death, so too certainly will we also be in the likeness of his resurrection. It's a new and living way that death leads to life. And it's an invitation for all of us to enter into. And so I want to um, continue to unpack the reality of the God of self that needs to be crucified in order for us to live. 
And I'd like to take us back to the beginning this morning. So if you've got your Bibles, you can open up to Genesis. Genesis chapter 1, verses 26, and you can put your finger there and flick across to Genesis chapter 3 and put your finger there as well. It says this, Then God said, Let us make man in our image according to our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over the cattle and over all earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. It says right at the beginning that God created Adam and Eve in his image and in his likeness. He created them to be participants and partakers of his divine nature. The image that he's talking about is not the physical image of an invisible God, but the spiritual image of the one who is love, created to, to be in the likeness and fellowship with God himself. It's a beautiful prophetic picture of who we were always predestined and called to be. But something happened in Genesis chapter 3. And the serpent comes to Adam and Eve and, and says this. Now the serpent was more crafty than any beast of the field which the Lord had made. And he said to the woman, indeed, has God said, you shall not eat from any tree in the garden The woman said to the serpent, from the fruit of the trees of the garden we may eat, but from the fruit of the tree which is the middle of the garden, God has said, you shall not eat from it or touch it or you will die. The serpent said to the woman, you surely will not die. For God knows that in the day you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good from evil. You will be like God. Isn't that interesting? You'll be like God. Now, for all of those in the room who have slightly nerdy tendencies, see anyone here? Me and David Southern, I've got you, mate. In the original Greek, you know, so in the English it says, for God knows that in the day you will eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you'll be like God. In the Greek it doesn't say like. It says you will be God. Do you know that the word God is the same God that said in the beginning God? The word is Elohim. It's God Almighty. And so the serpent comes to Eve and says, hey, do you want to be God? Do you want to not just be like God, but do you want to be God? What an offer, eh? And so Adam and Eve eat of the fruit of this tree and something happens in their inner realm. They don't become God in the, in the sense of God Almighty. They don't become the ruler of the heavens and earth. But something transacts in their inner being that they become God of their own life. And in a moment, the spiritual life that was in them, when God said, let us make man in our own image, the spiritual image that he had predestined them to live in, and and from, died, and they became alive to the God of self. They became gods of their own lives. Is that not the most radical and crazy thing? They became not God Almighty, but they became the God of their own world and of their own lives. Now, 
when this transaction took place, they didn't swap roles from God. They didn't become God. They didn't have the ability to speak heaven and earth into being. But they became the gods of their own life. The God of self came alive within them. And and a transaction took place in that moment that where before they had perfect fellowship and communion and joint participation in the reality of his life, they then had separation and a disconnect and broken fellowship. And it says this, Then the eyes of both of them were opened and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loin coverings. They heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord among the trees of the garden. Then the Lord God called to the man and said to him, where are you? He said, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and so I hid myself. And he said, who told you you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree which I commanded you not to eat? And the man and the woman who gave, uh, and the man said, the woman who you gave to be with me, she gave me from the tree and I ate. Interesting, eh? And so we see man and woman, Adam and Eve, who are walking in this beautiful, perfect communion in a moment, eat this tree and they die spiritually and something takes place in their inner world. That where they previously had fellowship, there was now disconnect. The God that they used to share in communion with, they were now afraid of. What is it that has taken place? Let me just take a quick drink. All of a sudden, they became self-conscious. They became self-centered. They became self-concerned. They went from being naked and unashamed to all of a sudden sowing fig leaves as a covering, not to one another, but to cover themselves up from him. They ate the fruit And God didn't change, but they changed. And their inner world and their view of God, their perspective towards God, all of a sudden was darkened. They changed. And so you see right from the get-go that the God of self permeated their innermost being, that where he was always supposed to be the, the source of their very life, they became their own source, and it had disastrous consequences for them. But that's not the end of the story. In fact, it's not even the beginning of the story. It's just a road bump along the way to an incredible salvation that God had predestined for us to enter into as his people. He had predestined us for this fellowship, and before Adam and Eve even ate that fruit, he had made and prepared a way for redemption and reconciliation back, not to heaven, 
but back into that image that we were created and predestined to live in and live from. Do you know that in Revelation it says that the lamb was slain before the foundations of the world? That God had made a way before Adam and Eve ate the tree for us to enter into the reality of true fellowship with God, not through our own ability, but through the reality of the gospel itself penetrating our inner world and taking us from a place that was darkened and separate and self-conscious and being ashamed in front of him and each other to a place of fullness and wholeness, redeemed back to our original created position. A full and complete salvation back in towards God's original intention. Do you know that it was in this darkened place that God reached out and he came into our world. And it says that when we were yet sinners, he sent his son and had in store for us a full and complete salvation, a complete restoration back to his original intention for us in the beginning. Now, last week we were looking at the God of self and, and Greg shared about this God of self that lives in us and, and dominates our soul realm. And I'd like to unpack that a little bit this morning because I feel like it can bring some real clarity to what it is that God's salvation work does within us. Is that cool? So I've got this trusty whiteboard this morning that I'm going to draw on. And so, like we heard about last week, God's redemption is full and complete. He wants to redeem every part of our being. In First Thessalonians, it says, And may the God of peace sanctify you entirely. And may your spirit and soul and body be preserved complete without blame at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Spirit, soul, and body be preserved complete without blame at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Some of you may seen this, have seen this before. Is that all right? Can people see? Probably not these guys. That's the incentive to come and sit in the front row. <laughs> You're welcome to move now. It's not embarrassing. The video will only get the back of your head. <laughs> um, but, yeah, LJ, <laughs> ripping it for the team. But man is broken down into three parts, spirit, soul, and body. And at, and at the full, all three of those parts were tainted by what it was that happened when Eve and Adam ate that fruit. 
You know, it says that we were darkened in our spirit, that we were cut off from the very source of life. That our spirit, which was is the deep innermost part of our being that connects with God, it says was darkened, it became dead. And our soul realm, does anyone remember from last week what our soul is? Your mind, will, and emotions were twisted and tainted. And now all of a sudden, instead of um, springing from the wellspring of true life that came from God, the source of life, the tree, um, the tree of life, all of a sudden became self-centered, self-consumed, and dominated mankind. Man became self-conscious towards God. And so our spirit, our soul, and our body, which was created by God, all of a sudden now has a limited lifespan. I don't know if anyone has tried to live without dying, but it hasn't been achieved from all of creation, from the fall of man to today. Even back in the day, people would live 300 years, but couldn't escape the reality of the impact of the fall. And so the the fall had a an absolute dramatic impact on every part of our being. But the gospel has an even greater impact in redeeming every part of our innermost being, our spirit, our soul, and our body. It says that when we were yet sinners, he sent his son. It says that when we were dead in sin, dead in sin, dead in our spirit, Towards God, God made us alive together with Christ. We were born again of an incorruptible seed that entered into us. And so God sent his son to rescue us and redeem us out of darkness and into light. It says that the gospel, that through the gospel, God forgives us. He redeems us. He reconciles us back to himself as sons. He makes us his priests. He separates the sin as far as the east is and the west away from us. He makes us right. He makes us righteous in his sight. He saves us from the deadness of our spirit and makes us alive to him through the word of God. Is that not the most incredible and awesome thing? The redemption that comes through this one man's sacrifice is absolutely breathtaking and incredible, hey? But this is the salvation of our spirit. The redemptive work that God, what God has done for us, that it says that he bore our sins on a tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. That God has saved us from the the deadness of our spirit and has made us alive in him. It says that if you would just believe with your heart and confess with your mouth, you will be saved. Your spirit will be saved. But 
what God has done for us needs to be made real and alive within us. You know, it says, having been justified, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Having been justified by faith, we have peace with God. So if we're justified, if if God sees us just as if we've never sinned, if he's made us right with him, it says that we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, what happens if we've been justified by his blood, but we don't live with peace within our hearts? Has anyone ever experienced that having been a Christian? To live having been justified, but but not without a sense of peace, without their inner realm, knowing the reality of that salvation? Does that mean that you're not justified? Having been justified by faith, you have peace with God, but there's no peace within us. Is that not confronting? Having been justified by faith, we have peace with God. Yet, having been justified, the reality of what God has done for us needs to go from being a salvation of our spirit to all of a sudden moving out so that the reality of what God has done for us becomes real within us. That the reality of what he's done for us permeates and penetrates the, the reality of his words comes into our innermost being and where there was no peace, all of a sudden we receive the reality of his peace within us. That what he's done within our spirit now needs to be made real within our soul. It's called, does anyone know what this process is called? Sanctification. You know, the reality is that for many believers, they've only heard a half gospel about the salvation of their spirit so that they can go to heaven when they die, but haven't heard about the reality of entering into his death. They know about a, they know about a cross that was out there, but they don't know about a cross in here. They know about being covered by his blood, but they don't know about what it means to be crucified in the likeness of his death so that we might share with him in the likeness of his resurrection. It says that we're to have fellowship with his sufferings. So the God of self that exists in the soul realm, our minds, our will, and our emotions. The inner world that dominates our thinking, that dominates what we're living from and for, and dominates how we think and feel, needs to be crucified so that the reality of who we've been predestined to come, to, to be and become, would be 
formed and filled and expressed and dominate the nature of what we became through Adam. So I just want to read that verse again. First Thessalonians 5.23 And may the God of peace sanctify you entirely and may your spirit and soul and body be preserved complete and without blame at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Our mind, the way that we... the way that we think about God must be renewed. Now I put here that the renewing of our minds is not an academic process. You will never, ever, ever, ever read the scriptures and be able to have his mind about who he is and about who you are. Why? Because when you read the Bible through your own mind, your inner world will define who he is and who you are. You'll hear a message about righteousness and being right with him, but your inner realm will scream at you disconnection from God, and so that what God has said about who you are, you'll reject before you can even receive the reality of that within you. Your inner realm will dominate you every time, and that's why he says you must be renewed in the spirit of your mind renewed in the spirit of your mind, that there must be a supernatural transaction that takes place, that the reality of how you think and feel that has been inherited through the fall, through disconnect with God, through falling out of fellowship, through sowing fig leaves, through all of a sudden needing to approve yourself to him, needs to be crucified by truth. That the God of ourselves that dominates and dictates our inner world needs to be confronted by an even greater truth. Did you know that the truth does not set you free? Did you know that the truth doesn't even make you free? Is that heresy to say on a Sunday morning in a building called The Rock? The truth does not make you free. It says that you will know the truth and the truth will make you free. You see, truth walked with the disciples day in and day out for three and a half years. And Jesus says to Philip, Philip, how long have I been with you and you still don't know me? You still don't know me. See, the truth himself, who's a person who's Christ, walked with the disciples for three and a half years, but the truth didn't make them free. They could see and touch and feel and experience and eat with them. They might have even sat on chairs that he made as a carpenter. They could see the reality of his miracles, the things that he did. But the truth, the person didn't make them free. It says you will know the truth and the truth will make you free. See, the truth can no longer exist outside of us. He says that I need to, it's to your benefit that I go because if I don't go, the Holy Spirit won't come. And when he comes, he will lead you into all truth. See, truth 
was never designed to exist outside of us. Truth was designed to enter into our innermost being that we would have an intimate revelation knowledge of the truth, it says, which will make you free. See, the truth doesn't make you free. Knowing the truth will make you free. And that knowing is a gnosko knowing. It's a deep revelation knowledge of a person who's come to set up his home inside of us, like we heard this morning, that we would make room, is the word that came through in the pre-meeting, that that the rooms of our hearts, which were previously dominated by the disconnected soul realm from separation from him, from anxiety towards him, all of a sudden truth would take its rightful place within us that the God of self who had been dictating and dominating our inner world, creating anxiety and frustration and disappointment and disillusionment towards God would be put to death by the reality of the gospel, by the reality of truth entering into us, not truth around us, not truth towards us, not truth walking beside us, but truth within us. You know, David said, I want to have truth in my innermost being, in my innermost place. You see, David had slayed Goliath. He had danced naked before God in the most lavish expression of love and devotion. He had spared Saul's life when his own life was on the line. He decided that he needed to be a man full of integrity, and so he spared the life of the one who was looking to kill him. He had a history in God. Yet he came to this place where when confronted with the reality of truth, where in being caught in a situation of adultery and then needing to cover up the adultery by murdering the lady's husband, He all of a sudden is found out for the reality that existed within him. David, this man of God, this man who had a history in the things of God, all of a sudden came to a point where the reality within him was not enough to be able to, in that time and in that position, to be who he needed to be. And all of a sudden... Truth that he knew to a measure needed to become real within him. And David, when confronted by Nathan the prophet, repented. His spirit of pride, the God of self, David, having slain Goliath, but still living from this posture and position of pride, needed to come to this place where his inner world was crucified. And he says this in Psalm 50, what is it, 51 or 53? Take not 
your spirit away from me. I want to have truth in the innermost place. Let not, let me not be dominated by my soul realm. Let the reality of your spirit be what is living and in me. I want to have truth in the innermost place. I can no longer be the soul. I can no longer be the source of my life. And in that moment, his pride was crucified. And he realized the depth of mercy that he never knew existed before. He received in him the mercy of God to a greater measure than what he had known. And he ceased to exist. So like I said, the renewing of the mind is not an academic process. It's a supernatural transaction. Adam and Eve's inner world were dominated by their own thought life and their own perspective about who God was and who they were because the God of self was still living and he still lives in us until we came come to that same posture and position in him. You know, we heard last week the testimony of a man who, on this day in 1997, having not been a Christian, received Christ in him that crucified him. Now, it can almost be easy to think, excuse me, well, that's easy for him to say, but what about me? I've been a Christian all these years and that was, that was your starting point. What, what on earth, like I was saying at the beginning, what on earth does that mean for me? What does it mean for David? A man with a history in God. What if David had come to the point and had been able to justice, justify his way out of having to go through the deep repentance because of the things that he had done for God, his past history with God that had somehow justified him and freed him from needing to come to this beginning place so far on in his walk. You know, this is something that was so real for me that growing up, coming along to church services, doing the Christian thing for so many years, that we are here a testimony of a man who received in a moment revelation on the inside, having come from living for himself in the world. It's a completely different story. I had come from living my absolute in my absolute best ability to please God and serve God, doing everything that I could to what I thought approve myself to him. That they're two examples, two different stories, but one that needed to come to the same ultimate starting position. <clears throat> you see, for some people, living life in the world is enough to realize that actually there's no life in living for you. But for many of us, you can be, you can become a Christian 
and enter into your Christianity in the same way that you lived in the world. But all of a sudden, the life that you were living for yourself in the world, you're now living for yourself as a believer. Why? Because you're still living from this soul realm, the God of self still exists in your life. So you just exchange living for you in the world, your own passions, desires, priorities. And then if you enter into Christianity in that same way, you will project that same kinds of mentality and heart position into your relationship with God. And all of a sudden, you will try and find your identity in the things that you do for God as opposed to God himself. You'll be found trying to find life in your religious devotion. You'll be trying fight, you'll be found trying to find life and serving him and pleasing him and doing everything that you can. Do you get the picture? Why? Because you've simply exchanged not your inner world. You've you've exchanged your outer expression, but you haven't exchanged your inner realm. You go, you simply transition from living for God, for living for yourself, for the self living for the things in the world to self living for religious and spiritual things. Do you know that that position is the most destructive, heart-wrenching, devastating position that you can possibly live in. At least when you're in the world, you can enjoy (laughs) the passions and desires of your flesh. You may as well enjoy living for you. I'm serious. Why not? Because you're in a realm is still exactly the same. Now, I'm joking. It's actually a worse position because you're no longer, because you're not redeemed. You have no hope. Your spirit hasn't been born again. You haven't been reconciled back to the Father. You are in a worse position. But in your inner world, you're in exactly the same position. Come up, come up, this. Come up. Come up, this. It's even worse. What you've tried to do is make God your debtor. You've tried to say to him, you owe me. You owe me for what I've done for you. You have no humility. You do not know who your God is. That, and that's, I tell you, the best day of my life was when I got on my face and I cried and I cried because God had said to me, you know, what you're doing is satanic. He wanted to build himself up to be equal with me. You're trying the same thing. And, um, you know, yeah. Oh, Lord, thank you. For, thank you for delivering me from that state. And 
if he delivered me, he can deliver anyone. <laughs> Thanks, sis. And you know, living from that place is the most destructive and heart-wrenching place to be in. And the more religious that you are, the worse that it is. The harder that you try, the more you realize that your inner realm is conditioned to be rejected by God. It's the most devastating thing. Hey, Tess. And so for us, many of us can't necessarily relate to entering and beginning our Christianity in the way that we may have heard from Greg. But what Tess is sharing is what I've experienced, which is that actually the reality of the heart of man is exactly the same, no matter where we've come from. Because we're dictated and dominated by separation from him as opposed to connectedness and fellowship with him. But we've been predestined to be and become. You know, in Galatians 4, And Greg touched on this briefly last week, but I'd like to look at it in a bit more detail. In Galatians 4, there's a picture of those who are sons, but live with the heartbeat and mentality of slaves. Now, it says this... In Galatians 4, now I say, as long as the heir is a child, he does not differ at all from a slave, although he is the owner of everything. But he is under guardians and managers until the date set by the father. So also we, while we were children, were held in bondage under the elemental things of the world. But when the fullness of time came, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, so that he may redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. Because you are sons, God sent forth the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Therefore, you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son then an ear through God. Now I say as long as the ear is a child, he does not differ at all from a slave, although he is the owner of everything. As long as the ear is a child, as long as the ear is immature, he doesn't differ at all from a slave, Although, just wait a second, he happens to be the inheritor of all things. He happens to be the one who's been predestined to to live in the fulfillment of the eternal promise. 
the one who has been predestined before the ages to be a son of his and live as a son. The one who every, I'm sorry about my voice, (laughs) every good gift has been given. Now I say as long as the ear is a child, as long as the ear, that's you and I, the Christian is immature. He doesn't differ at all from a slave, although he's the, oh, the owner of all things. What is he saying? That as long as you are a son, but don't know the reality of your sonship and your redemption, as long as you are a son, having been reconciled back to the father, but remain immature in your thinking, in your mentality, in your inner realm, you do not differ at all from a slave, although you just happen to be the inheritor and owner predestined to enter into all things. Isn't that not the most devastating position? That if you weren't predestined, it's almost like, cool, you were never supposed to in the first place. But the one who has been but doesn't enter in, that's devastating. We need to not just be sons positionally. We need to be sons actually and in the reality of the life that we live in and live from. You know, it says that all creation is groaning in eager expectation for the sons of God to be revealed. It doesn't say that all creation's groaning for the sons of God to be justified, to be saved, to be going to heaven. It says that all creation is groaning in eager expectation for the sons of God to be revealed, to take their rightful place, to enter into everything that they were predestined to be, to live in and live from. But they absolutely and cannot when they are still living in and from and for the God of self. Where their inner world and their inner realm dictates and dominates who they were called and predestined to be. And so the sword of his word needs to come like an arrow and penetrate our inner world. Birthing truth within us. That we would receive Christ in us that the God of self would be crucified and put to death and we would receive in us the reality of sonship on the inside. He says, because you are sons, God has sent forth the spirit of his son into our hearts by which we call out Abba, Father. Does that cry come from the depth of your innermost being? Because that's What happens when He's in us? You know, as we were praying in the prayer meeting about making room, you know, I was reminded of 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 this of this verse where it says that a house divided cannot stand. A house divided, a house where within you is darkness and light receiving the seed but being dominated 
by the inner realm and the inner world, a house divided cannot stand. We see it in Romans 7. The things I want to do, I cannot do, and I just end up doing the very thing that I hate. I've been predestined as a son, but I'm living as a slave. Do you know what the remedy and the antidote is to that kind of destructive living? It's not being covered. It's not being forgiven. It's being crucified. That the God of self would be put to death. And from within us would flow these rivers of living water. Would flow out of us the spirit of adoption, the spirit of sonship. Having Christ himself formed in us by the power and reality of the Holy Spirit. Now, I assume that the music's <laughs> playing. I haven't even started on point number one. <laughs> but I think it's okay. But we cannot have truth existing outside of us. Truth needs to come and penetrate within us. Now, I poured out my heart for a moment this morning. Tess has poured out her heart. Greg poured out his heart. Every time we have people that come and share, it's an invitation to come and join with us in fellowship. So I'm inviting you, and I believe that the Holy Spirit is inviting you this morning to enter in. That the gospel demands a response. They said at Pentecost, what must we do? And Peter said, repent. Repent and believe. Repent and receive. Repent and let go of the old life, the old man what you've lived in and from maybe for 30 years of your Christianity, being bound by yourself, being bound by insecurity and fear and unforgiveness. Repent of living beneath who you were called to be and rise up and allow the Holy Spirit to come and enter into you in birth life. So I'd like to invite you to respond this morning. It's not an altar call because you can come up and enter into an emotional response and still be operating in your soul realm. You need to receive power from on high that penetrates through that realm and births the life of the Spirit in you through crucifixion. So I'd like you to respond this morning in the way that you feel the Holy Spirit is calling you to respond. You might want to come up the front. You might want to ask someone to pray with you. You might want to get on your knees in front of your chair. You might want to get on your face. You might want to sit in silence and allow Him to minister to you, but don't draw back. 
fall forward, fall into, step into, position yourself in what it is that he's called you to. So Father, I pray for what human words cannot accomplish. Father, let your Holy Spirit come and minister. Let it be like an arrow, Father. Let it be like a sword. Let it cut and divide. Let it divide soul and spirit. Father, let truth impact our inner realm. That we would no longer exist. That the God of self would no longer dominate. That our inner world would no longer scream separation, rejected, not good enough, not redeemed, unloved. Father, let your gospel enter in. And with it, the reality and the knowledge of the deep, deep love of God, having been rerouted, rooted and grounded in love. Father, we pray this in your precious and awesome name. Amen.